Welcome to Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis and to our Thursday noon town hall forum. I am Donald Meisel, minister with my colleagues to and with this Center City congregation. These forums, which are free and open to the public, occur some six times a year between September and April. We're into our third season. Attendance has ranged from 700 to 2,200. The 2,200 was last month. Those in our radio audience are invited and warmly encouraged to come whenever you can. Why is Westminster Church sponsoring these forums? Because we believe that given our heritage, given our location in the center of this throbbing city, given the hunger and need that we all experience to look hard issues in the face with the help of articulate, experienced, highly motivated people, it's incumbent upon us to afford each other these public forums, and that under the guiding rubric, Voices of Conscience, Key Issues in Ethical Perspective. Minnesota Public Radio has broadcast live and then rebroadcast these forums from the onset. They've been a constant source of encouragement to us, and we're now being carried nationwide over American Public Radio. Our speaker, today, and it's the reason you're here, is Dr. Helen M. Caldecott, pediatrician and author. Her appearance here today is being co-sponsored by the Pillsbury Company. She is National President of Physicians for Social Responsibility. Dr. Caldecott has resigned her position as an instructor in pediatrics at Harvard Medical School and is on leave from the Cystic Fibrosis Clinic at the Children's Hospital Medical Center in Boston so that she might devote all of her time to educating the public about the dangers of nuclear war. Dr. Caldecott has been concerned about the medical implications of the nuclear fuel cycle and nuclear war since 1971 when she participated in the Australian movement against French atomic atmospheric tests in the Pacific Ocean and was instrumental in bringing the tests to a halt. I'm going to introduce her to you by reading from a letter to the editor that appeared in this Tuesday's Minneapolis Star and Tribune. The contributor had heard Dr. Caldecott's message at the Minneapolis Auditorium a week ago Sunday. Quote, Never in my more than fourscore years have I been moved as I was by Dr. Helen Caldecott. This dynamic young Australian has given up her practice as a pediatrician to try to save the children of the whole world. She is a modern-day Paul Revere, traveling from city to city to alert Americans before it is too late. The public will have another chance to hear Dr. Caldecott as part of the Westminster Presbyterian Church's town hall series at noon Thursday. Please be there. This is not a problem that we can live with. End of quote. You are here. She is here. 
It's good to bring you together. Dr. Caldecott. Thank you very much. I think this is a very important day. Uh, the Catholic bishops are having their meeting at the moment. The Reagan administration is attacking them somewhat. Um, the debate is really coming to a head in this country for the first time in 37 years. For the first time since I was 14 and I read On the Beach and I lived in Melbourne, Australia, I believe we have some hope. We've got two years to do it in. It is the prescription for survival. I believe we can do it. What I want to do now is describe the planet in terms of a medical patient. I'll go through the diagnosis, the history of the illness, the physical examination, the prognosis, how long we think we've got to live, the uh, pathogenesis, the dynamics of the pathology, the uh, terminal event, both the acute and chronic uh, implications of that, the etiology or cause of the illness, and the therapy. The diagnosis is that we have a terminally ill planet which is infected with lethal macrobes, which are the hydrogen bombs, which are metastasizing rapidly. That's what a cancer does. It spreads throughout the body uh, and eventually the patient dies. To say it's terminally ill doesn't necessarily mean it will die. When a patient comes into the emergency room who looks terminally ill, we don't say that patient is terminally ill. Nurse, take them straight to the mortuary and put them in the icebox. We put them in the intensive care unit, work on them assiduously day and night, and occasionally, occasionally, the patient survives. The history began, of course, when Einstein and Leo Szilard wrote a letter to President Roosevelt convincing him that Hitler was developing nuclear weapons and America should become involved in the same thing. Thus began the Manhattan Project, uh, run by a brilliant physicist called Robert Oppenheimer. They spent three years developing enough uranium and plutonium to make three bombs, the first codenamed Trinity, tested in the desert in July 1945 in New Mexico. When it blew up, they said they'd never seen anything like it. The desert in which it exploded suddenly became minute as it was filled with a violent blue light. And Robert Hoppenheimer said, to quote from the Bhagavad Gita, I have become death, destroyer of worlds. That night, the physicists had a party to celebrate their so-called victory. The next bomb, codenamed Little Boy, was blown up over Hiroshima, and at that time, about 100,000 people died. Children were seen running along the streets with the skin falling off their bodies like veils. A woman was lying in the gutter, totally burnt, and as she lay dying, her baby was still suckling at her breast. A man was standing in a state of acute clinical shock, holding his eye in the palm of his hand. That night there was another party held by the physicists, but one man described how he felt. He said he was so profoundly nauseated and depressed he had to go to bed. And he said, you know, when we did the calculations, we never calculated human beings as matter. We never thought about what the bombs would do to people. And that over half the scientists and engineers in this country at this time are involved in a similar mindset building weapons, never really contemplating morally, physically, or medically what the bombs will do to people. The next bomb, codenamed Fat Man, was dropped over Nagasaki. Some people who escaped Hiroshima ran away to Nagasaki, the only Christian center in Japan, thinking that would never be bombed by this country. 
Some people in Japan say we can understand the first bomb, but they ask, why the second? After the war, there were attempts to internationalize the secret of atomic energy. It didn't work. This country decided to develop bombs, thinking that Russia would never get the secret. Scientific knowledge is not secret. It becomes available to all the scientists. We are just discovering God's natural laws. And within four years, Russia had her first atomic bombs. And so began the spiraling arms race, led almost always by the brilliance and technology of this country, followed blindly and stupidly by the Soviet Union. Edward Teller then developed the hydrogen bomb, the super bomb, which can be enormous. And within one year, uh, Russia developed the hydrogen bomb. The bomb dropped on Hiroshima was equivalent to 13,000 tons of TNT. The biggest bombs to that time were 10 tons. The hydrogen bomb can be 20 million tons of TNT equivalent, or four times the collective energy of all the bombs dropped during the Second World War in one bomb. They're cheap and easy to make. One reason NATO has deployed them in Europe is that it's cheaper to deploy hydrogen bombs in Europe than troops. <clears throat> so uh, the arms race began and it was initiated and, and uh, followed by a series of gaps, the bomber gap, the missile gap, etc., which have always proved to be fallacious. The gaps say that Russia's ahead, therefore we should catch up, but in, through the retrospectoscope they've always proved to be not there. Then an interesting thing happened. We had the Cuban Missile Crisis and we were almost within hours of a nuclear war. After that, John Kennedy got a terrible shock and so did Khrushchev. And interestingly, their mindset changed. And I'm remembered of what Einstein said, the splitting of the atom changed everything save man's mode of thinking. Thus we drift, actually we're running now, towards unparalleled catastrophe. And the Cuban Missile Crisis changed the mindset of the leaders of the world. And I just want to read to you what happened. In 1963, Kennedy made his celebrated strategy of peace speech at the American University. In this speech, Kennedy praised the Russians for their accomplishments and sacrifices, expressed optimism about solving our mutual problems, and announced a unilateral act. The US was stopping all atmospheric tests and would not resume them unless the USSR did so first. The speech was printed in full on the first page of both Pravda and Izvestia. It had a profound personal effect. Many Russians carried the newspaper clippings in their wallets for months afterward because for the first time in recent memory, an American president had commented on their bravery and sacrifice during World War II and actually seemed to be reaching out to them. They lost 25 million people in that war. On June the 15th, Khrushchev responded. He welcomed the US initiative and further announced a halt to the plans for produc production of strategic bombers. Further tit-for-tat followed. The US had earlier proposed a hotline to reduce the chances of misunderstandings. An agreement on this was reached on June 20th. Test ban negotiations ban began for real in July, and the partial test ban treaty was signed on August 5th. Things were doing so well that the Russians even coined their own phrase, calling it the policy of mutual example. Tensions between the two superpowers had reached an all-time post-war low. On October 9th, JFK announced a $250 million wheat sale to the USSR, and then later that fall, he was assassinated in Dallas. I remember that day. My brother's a diplomat. He came to my house in Canberra, Australia, and told me what had happened, and I wept. I wept, and the first thought I had was, will we survive? 
men on the golf courses in Australia took their caps off and stood openly crying. We visited Iran in 1974. In every shop window in Iran was a picture of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Why? Because the world believed he was leading us towards survival. After that, McNamara became Secretary of Defense and he determined the policy of deterrence. If America had 200 to 400 bombs, that would be enough to kill one-third to one-half of the Russian people and destroy two-thirds of their industry. That became the official policy of deterrence. If you think of that medically and morally, that means this country had the ability and will, if necessary, officially, to kill about 100 million Russian people who are all the sons and daughters of God. That policy was enunciated some 20 years after Hitler died. Unfortunately, at that time, though, uh, the Air Force had all the bombs. And if you read a book by James Fellows called National Defense, you'll find that there's a tremendous rivalry between the armed forces. And the Army and Navy were jealous and they wanted bombs too. So they decided that to diversify and everyone could have their own hydrogen bombs. They put them in the airplanes in the air, on the ground in the silos, in the submarines under the water. And so they developed the triad. At that time, Ted Taylor miniaturized nuclear weapons so they could put them in little artillery tubes. They put them in torpedoes, landmines, surface-to-surface -surface missiles. They are all over the place. This country does not have conventional forces now. They are all nuclearized. So, and at about that time, there's a man called Morton Halperin who was uh, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense and he said, the NATO doctrine is that we will fight with conventional forces until we are losing. Then we will fight with tactical nuclear weapons until we are losing. And then we will blow up the world. That has been the official NATO doctrine for some 20 years. Well, instead of the USA having some 400 bombs, which was quite enough to do the job, if they wanted to do such a job, today it has 30,000 nuclear weapons. Of those, about 10,000 are strategic. They can hit the Soviet Union in half an hour once, once launched from their missile pads, 30 minutes. Um, the rest are tactical nuclear weapons. They're in West Germany, they're in Europe, they're in the ships. 70% of, of your ships carry nuclear weapons. The Soviet Union have 20,000 as opposed to 30,000 bombs. Of their 7,500 are strategic that can hit you in half an hour. There are only 2,000 targets in the USSR and the USA alike. So therefore, America can overkill, which is a Pentagon word, every Russian person 40 times, and Russia can kill, overkill every American person 20 times. I'm now onto the physical examination, the numbers of bombs each side has at this time. As well, England has an arsenal sufficient to destroy the Soviet Union alone. So does France, and so does China as well as lateral proliferation of nuclear weapons spreading throughout the third world countries. Pakistan is about to develop its own weapon financed by Colonel Gaddafi of Libya. South Korea is nearly there. Taiwan, Chile, Brazil, Argentina. Um, Israel probably has 200 bombs according to the CIA and almost certainly South Africa recently tested its own. That is lateral proliferation which destabilizes the balance of terror built up by the spiraling arm, vertical arms race between the superpowers. 
The war in the Falklands could have become nuclear, almost certainly Britain had nuclear weapons down there. Argentina is within months of making its first nuclear weapon. So we're in a very uh, labile situation and in fact we're lucky to wake up each day. The prognosis. How long do we think the planet will survive? Well, we need to look at what the administration is saying at this time. They have produced a new five-year war plan at the Pentagon, and it calls for a protracted, winnable nuclear war over six months. That is now your new official doctrine. It was signed by Caspar Weinberger. It also calls for economic warfare with the Soviet Union, which I would think would be medically contraindicated because the more hostile we are to them, the more chances in their paranoia they could in fact press the button. Uh, Edward Teller, who was the father of the hydrogen bomb and has been one of the main architects of the arms race, is now the chairman of a presidential committee uh, called the Defence Science Advisory Board and he's advising the president about nuclear weapons. He recently uh, called for the fail-armed policy. Now you know about the fail-safe policy. The, co the computers prevent nuclear war by getting the radar signs and the signs from the satellites fail-safe. His fail-armed policy says that every 30 minutes the messages come in, don't press, don't press, don't press. If one 30 minutes goes by and the message doesn't come in, you automatically press. Edward Teller is now one of the main advisors to the president. There's a new book that's just coming out called With Enough Shovels by an LA Times a reporter called Robert Shear. I'd just like to read a little bit from this. Eugene Rostar, the man in charge of disarmament, now says we are living in a pre-war and not a post-war world. Charles Kupperman, a Reagan appointee to the Arms Control and Disarmament Agency, said, it is possible for any society to survive a nuclear war. He added that nuclear war is a destructive thing, but still in a large part a physics problem. <laughs> Colin Gray, a leading advocate of nuclear war fighting, wrote recently in Foreign Affairs, to advocate targeting flexibility and selectivity is not the same as to advocate a war fighting, war survival strategy. Victory or defeat in nuclear war is possible, and such a war may have to be waged to that point. And the clearer the vision of successful war termination, the more likely war can be waged intelligently at earlier stages. He wrote an article in Foreign Policy called Victory is Possible. Herbert York, who's a veteran of the Manhattan Project, who's formerly director of California's, California's Lawrence Livermore Labs, wrote about what's happening now in the Reagan administration. What's going on right now is that the crazier analysts have risen to higher positions than is normally the case. They are able to carry their ideas further and higher because the people at the top are simply less well informed than is normally the case. Neither the current president nor his immediate backers in the White House nor the current Secretary of Defense have any experience with these things. So when the ideologues come in with their fancy stories and with their selected intelligence data, the president and the Secretary of Defense believe the last glib person who talked to them. And then there's a man called T.K. Jones in the Pentagon um, T.K. Jones was appointed by Reagan as the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering. He is in charge of civil defense for this country to protect us all in the event of a nuclear war. He said recently, if there are enough shovels to go around, everybody's going to make it. 
The shovels are for digging holes in the ground, which would be covered, he said, somehow or other, with a couple of doors and with three feet of dirt thrown on top, thereby, thereby providing adequate fallout shelters for the millions who had been evacuated from American cities to the countryside. He said, it's the dirt that does it. That's what we'd be doing, digging our own graves. Richard Pipes, who's the Soviet advisor to the president, says that there's a 40% chance of nuclear war in the next decade. He said recently, unless Russia changes from communism to capitalism, there will be a war. And he's told American people to start psychologically preparing themselves for a nuclear war. I've tried to do that. I find it a difficult uh, concept. <laughs> Now I want to talk about the pathogenesis. In the next uh, 10 years, the Reagan administration plans to build 17,000 more nuclear weapons, which are very serious and which will invalidate the freeze concept. The first one is the cruise missile, which is a small strategic nuclear weapon that can be hidden. Now to this stage, strategic weapons are those that can reach the Soviet Union in half an hour. They can be verified by satellites because you can see them because they're so large. We don't have to trust the Russians, we know what they've got, and vice versa. Once the cruise missile is deployed next year in Europe, it can be hidden in sheds and trucks and in ships and aeroplanes. That's the end of any valid form of arms control or detente. That is next year. The Russians don't have these new weapons I'm talking about. That's why it will invalidate the freeze concept, because at the moment there is a position of strategic parity. Don't forget, when they talk about arms negotiations, they only talk about the strategic weapons. They lose, leave out the thousands, tens of thousands of tactical nuclear weapons, which could in fact start the nuclear war. So it's very single-eyed policy. The uh, Pershing-2 missile, which is to be put in Europe next year, reaches Moscow in four to six minutes. It's to be used for decapitation, according to the five-year war plan, which is to, to destroy the Soviet command, control, and communication centers. Um, it, because it reaches Moscow in four to six minutes instead of 30, uh, the Russians will have to go to a system called launch on warning because they won't have time to say, gee, have the computers made a mistake again? The computers in the Pentagon made 151 mistakes recently in an 18-month period and brought us once to within 14 minutes of annihilation. There's not enough time to think about that, so they'll have to go to a system where computers decide to launch nuclear war. Launch on warning. That is next year. That's why I gave up medicine. The MX missile and Trident missiles are new, very accurate missiles. Now, they're great big missiles. And I'm reminded of psychosexual dynamics when we talk about missiles. <laughs> you could say people have a case of acute missile envy. <laughs> the MX is a huge missile, and in its top, it's got 10 hydrogen bombs, each much bigger than the Hiroshima bomb. And each has a computer in its nose, so they land very accurately on target within feet, having traveled 5,000 miles. So does the Trident missile. And so what happens is these are to be used to fight and win a nuclear war, according to the Pentagon's new strategy. Um, <clears throat> they will be used to destroy the Soviet missiles before they leave their silos. Most of the Soviet missiles are fueled by liquid fuel, and so they can't be launched immediately. It takes at least one hour to get them going, whereas most American missiles are fueled by solid fuel. 
Uh, most Soviet missiles are on the land and are vulnerable to a first strike, whereas half the American missiles are in the water and the subs and are invulnerable. So the Soviets are very vulnerable to have their, having their weapons destroyed and it's called killing their missiles. And what you do, it's like the Atari war games. <clears throat> Our children are being conditioned to fight nuclear war, you should know that. The uh, missile silos, you have to drop, they have 1400 missile silos, you have to drop 1400 hydrogen bombs just above each silo and seven seconds later, to be exact, another 1400 on the ground on each missile silo. So each silo gets two hydrogen bombs. You need two to give it such a big shaking around that it won't be launched. You don't destroy the missile because the missile silos are very hardened. Now what that will, if you bring the second wave of missiles in later than seven seconds, the gravel created from the first blown up in the atmosphere will shatter the incoming wave of missiles and you won't get a proper first strike attack. That's called fratricide. Now, one of the men in Los Alamos who makes these weapons told me if we have a first strike nuclear war in the next 10 or 20 years, cubic miles of dirt will be vaporized and thrown up into the atmosphere and activated as fallout and it will surround the globe with an envelope of radioactive fallout and the first strike nuclear war will create the on the beach syndrome which is lethal fallout <clears throat> for every human being on earth within weeks. That is what these new weapons mean. The cruise Pershing 2 and MX and Trident 2 and uh, they are, have just been appropriated the money. It's happening right now in Congress. Once they start getting on the production lines in the factories, it's almost impossible to stop them unless you people take over the factories, which is medically indicated. And the Russians don't have these weapons. That means that within a year, we can't have the freeze because the Russians will not get a freeze from a position of inferiority. We have to get it from a position of parity, which we have right now. The window of opportunity is open for about one to two years. Then if we lose that opportunity, we may as well all give up and live our hedonistic lives until the earth comes to an end. Let me now describe to you the terminal event, the acute and chronic implications of that. Um, a nuclear war between the superpowers will take about an hour, an hour to complete. It doesn't matter which side presses their button first by accident, a computer failure, by a man who's on drugs or alcohol. Every year 3,000 men who handle nuclear weapons are discharged from the military in this country because they're alcoholics, they take drugs or they're psychotic. And I suppose the same thing happens in the Soviet Union. Or whether it's the pressing of the button because one of the leaders decides to do that. The weapons go out from their silos, they go into space, re-enter the Earth's atmosphere at 20 times speed of sound and land accurately on whatever city is targeted. Meanwhile, the other country's satellite sees the attack coming, their buttons press, and the weapons could virtually cross mid-space. You won't have much time, but the president has a new thing for civil defense. He's going to put a special monitor on your radio and TV sets to tell you you have 15 minutes left to do whatever you have to do. Now, what I want to do, every town and city in this country uh, with a population down to 10,000 is targeted with at least one bomb. Such a redundancy is there of bombs, though, that there may be 64 targeted on New York City alone. 
I'll just drop one bomb on this city to give you an indication of what it means. If you just target the 73 nuclear reactors, and the Russians have targeted them according to their targeting plans, you'd cover the country with so much fallout you wouldn't need to do anything else. But anyway, we won't talk about that. All the energy facilities, major airports, oil refineries, everything's targeted. There's such a redundancy of weapons. So we'll drop a 20 megaton bomb on this beautiful church and we'll describe the effects. 20 megatons equivalent to 20 million tons of TNT or four times the energy of all the bombs dropped during the Second World War dropped at ground level on a clear day right now at 11.30, 12.30 in the morning would do this. It would dig a hole three quarters of a mile wide and 800 feet deep, converting all the buildings, us and the earth below to radioactive fallout which would be injected in the mushroom cloud up to 60,000 feet circulate around the globe from west to east as radioactive fallout. Up to a radius of six miles, every building would be flattened, most people vaporized because the human body is composed mostly of water and when we're exposed to the heat, the heat of the sun, we just turn into gas. And we have shadows of human beings from Hiroshima. That's all that was left, a shadow. Out to a radius of 20 miles from here, every person would be killed or lethally injured. The injuries are specific. There's a tremendous shock wave that goes out at twice the speed of sound with winds of 500 miles an hour, which literally pick human beings off the pavement, suck them out of buildings, and convert them into missiles traveling at 100 miles an hour until they hit the nearest solid object. Bricks and mortar are converted into missiles which hit human beings. The overpressures enter the respiratory tract through the nose and mouth, rupturing the lungs, producing acute death. They rupture the tympanic membranes, producing deafness. If you close in and you look at the flash, your eyes will melt, as they did in Hiroshima. <clears throat> the overpressures popcorn the windows, fracturing them into millions of shards of flying glass, travelling at 100 miles an hour, which will decapitate people and produce the most shocking hemorrhages and lacerations. Tens to hundreds of thousands of people will be most severely burnt. It takes us six months to treat a badly burnt patient with intensive medical care, hundreds of units of blood, fresh frozen plasma, antibiotics, etc. There are only one to 2,000 acute burn beds in the whole country. We're talking about tens to hundreds of thousands of burns. All those people will die, combined with trauma, acute radiation illness and burns in the most shocking agony, trapped under rafters and beams, by themselves with no relatives, no medical attention because most of us physicians are targeted in the metropolitan areas. Most hospitals will be destroyed. They won't even have any analgesia for their pain although it was reported that President Carter was stockpiling huge quantities of opium just in case there was to be a nuclear war. I don't know where it is. <laughs> 26 miles out, the heat is still so intense that if you're walking along, your clothes will spontaneously ignite and you'll become a walking, flaming torch. 40 miles away, if you reflexly glance at the flash, you'll be blinded by retinal burns. There'll be a firestorm where you think of 1,500 to 3,000 square miles where everything will spontaneously ignite to produce a holocaust. So if you get into a fallout shelter, the fire will suck the oxygen out and you'll die of asphyxiation and inhalation of noxious gases and the blast and heat will literally convert the fallout shelters to crematoria. That's why the Health Commission in Boston is thinking of taking down the fallout signs in Boston. 
Now, <clears throat> that's one bomb on one city. Almost certainly you have more than one bomb targeted on you. But let's think if you're in a rural area uh, and you do hear the sign on your TV that you have to run to the nearest fallout shelter if there is one. Now, <clears throat> you can't come out for six weeks. You should know that because the fallout is so intense, you would die later of acute radiation illness where your hair would fall out, you'd develop ulcers on the skin, bleeding and vomiting and bloody diarrhea and die of massive hemorrhage or infection, acute radiation illness. The conditions in the shelter will not be good, they'll be crowded, there probably won't be enough food or water. Uh, people living in close proximity develop meningitis and influenza. Uh, there'll probably pe be people who come down after the bombs have dropped who will develop acute radiation illness within one to two weeks and die in the shelter of vomiting and liquid diarrhoea. So you'll have very unhygienic conditions plus dead bodies. And you can imagine how you're going to feel psychologically because there'll be no world to re-enter. Everything that we've known and loved will be gone. There'll be no more Handel and Brahms and Beethoven or Rembrandt, or Picasso, or Shakespeare, or Dickens. It will be all gone. We think that within 30 days after a nuclear attack, all-out nuclear attack, up to 90% of Americans could be dead. They, if you take half the strategic arsenals in the year 1985 of both superpowers and you use them, of the 1.3 billion urbanized people in the Northern Hemisphere, from blast alone, excluding fire and fallout and all the rest, in the first couple of hours, 750 million people will be killed. That's half the strategic arsenal, a very conservative es estimate, 350 more seriously injured, and 200 sort of alive. Um, <clears throat> The cities will be full of bodies, animal and human alike, and as they decay, the bacteria will multiply and mutate to become more virulent. The insects, which are the vectors of disease, are very radio-resistant. The birds who eat the insects are not. We think most birds will be killed. The insects, cockroaches and flies will multiply in their trillions, transmitting disease from the dead to the living in targeted and non-targeted countries alike. Black plague, cholera, typhoid, poliomyelitis, rabies, hepatitis, tuberculosis, and many other diseases. The people who catch them will have their immune mechanisms compromised already from the radioactive fallout. We also think that a large part of the ozone layer could be destroyed by oxidation of the atmosphere, allowing the ultraviolet rays to get in from the sun where they might blind all unprotected eyes on the earth, human, animal, and insects alike. Also, if you stay out in the sun for about an hour, you could get third-degree sunburn and die. You'd have to stay underground till the ozone reaccumulates, uh, which may be 10 years. But unfortunately, the algae in the upper layers of ocean, the ocean that produce the oxygen that will rise up to reform the ozone layer, are also very sensitive to UV light. They could be killed, so the ozone may never reform or it may take a long time. We are here because the ozone layer is there to protect us. The microorganisms that form the base of the pyramid of life at which man stands at the apex in the soil are very sensitive to UV light. If they're killed, the pyramid of life collapses with man as well. There's only 30 days supply of food in the world at any one time. 
are to supply the whole world. This country is the breadbasket of the world, together with Canada, Argentina and Australia. Hundreds of millions of human beings around the world will die. We think that so much debris could be shot into the stratosphere, the earth could cool by one to two degrees Fahrenheit, thereby inducing another ice age. If you put all these effects together synergistically, we're not sure, but we think it's possible we could destroy most life on the planet. The only way to find out is to do the experiment, and there will be few people to write it up afterwards. How did this happen? It happened because the leaders of the world are practicing old modes of thinking as well as many of us. As Einstein said, the splitting of the atom changed everything except man's mode of thinking. They think in pre-nuclear thinking. The more bombs we've got, the safer we are, which is totally anachronistic in the nuclear age. The leaders of the world are practicing psychic numbing. They don't look. They don't think emotionally what it means to kill people. The world is run by old men, right? Right. Um, how many... I'm not decrying old men, I'm decrying these old men. How many leaders of the world have ever witnessed the incredible sight of a hydrogen bomb exploding? Seen a battleship rise up in the water like a splinter and disappear? How many leaders of the world have witnessed the miracle of the birth of a baby? How many leaders of the world have helped a child to die and supported the parents in their grief before and after? That is what we're talking about. There aren't communist babies and capitalist babies. A baby is a baby is a baby. As I referred to before, I think there are psychosexual dynamics in it. Hard and soft liners, hard energy pathways, soft energy pathways. I could go into that, but there isn't time. Think about it. The weapons makers, what are they doing? I think they're practicing counterphobic activities. I did medicine partly because I was frightened of my own death. I thought if I understood death better, I could handle it better. Many doctors do that. Maybe the bomb makers, while playing with death, may relieve their anxiety of death. Um, <clears throat> also, they're practicing nuclearism. The bombs are so terrible, there must be some good in it, and they almost worship at the feet of the bomb. What are the public doing? Well, we're practicing psychic numbing. How many of us wake up in the morning and think, thank God, it's another day? Aren't I lucky, this beautiful earth? And the reason we do that is we don't like to think about our own death. We don't do that until we have to, till we tell you you've got Hodgkin's disease or lymphoma or leukemia. Then you start the stages of grief, shock and disbelief, profound depression, so you lose your sexual drive, you don't want to get up in the morning, profound anger and finally adjustment. It's so painful you don't do it. Also to contemplate nuclear war means contemplating the end of one's concept of immortality. I live on through my children. Some people live on through the works they leave behind or the churches they build. Some people live on spiritually. But in a nuclear war, the concept of immortality disappears. So we don't think about it. We practice displacement activity. If you put rats in a cage and you threaten them with a lethal situation, they tend to run away and do something totally irrelevant to that which threatens them. Isn't that what we do every day? We also practice manic denial. We deny with such a mania. We're into hot tubs, jacuzzis, gourmet foods, 
materialistic things which don't matter a darn if within the next 10 years or two we're about to destroy God's creation. Those psychiatric mechanisms of denial are a form of passive suicide and we hospitalize suicidal patients. There's a societal illness abroad which we the physicians hope to heal. The children, I treat children who die and I've had children say to me, I'm going to die tonight, when clinically I didn't know they were, and they do. Children have a sixth sense, they are so wise. And the children have been studied by the American Psychiatric Association, and they find to their horror that the majority of children they talk to know for a fact they have no future. And they're right. They know their parents are practicing psychic numbing. They're absolutely desperate. They write letters, President Reagan, You've lived your life. I haven't finished playing yet. The psychiatrists think it may be one of the main reasons our children are taking drugs and drinking alcohol, and they resent us terribly for bringing them into a world where it's obvious to the youngest child that they have no future. The treatment is to shatter the psychic numbing and get people into their grief. Then they will start using their instinct for survival, the strongest physiological mechanism that any of us have. There's great joy in this work. It unites everybody, rich and poor, black and white, Russians and Americans, Republicans and Democrats. This is actually a very Republican issue because as businessmen are starting to say now, nuclear war will be bad for business. <laughs> It's also a very patriotic issue because we don't want this wonderful country destroyed along with all the other wonderful countries in the world including, if I may say, Australia. It's also a very conservative issue because we're for conserving life on the planet. It is the ultimate medical issue of our time because nuclear war will create the final epidemic. It's the ultimate theological issue of our time because are we going to save God's creation or are we not? I have a five-year plan. My five-year plan goes like this. A freeze in a year. 83% of Americans want it. 26% voted for the president. You've got a democracy. Use it. That means voting. That means, that means finding out how your congressmen and senators vote on these weapons. That means filling their offices up every time they come back with physicians, with their stethoscopes, mothers and fathers and lots of babies, crying if possible, and if you haven't got a baby, borrow one or make one. Okay, that's in a year. We must get it in a year. You know why? I've explained. In the next two years, we get George Kennan's proposal, your famous statesman a 50% across-the-board cut in all nuclear weapons and delivery systems bilaterally, no arguing about trivia because that's procrastination. In the next two years after that, two-thirds cut of the remainder of the weapons bilaterally, George Kennan's proposal again, at which time after five years, we still have enough weapons to kill each other several times, but we're moving medically in the right direction. That is my prescription for survival. By 1984, we can fill the Congress up with people who are for bilateral nuclear disarmament. Absolutely. We can do it in two years. Also, 
we have to stop hating other people. Nixon went to China, they're still communists, they're now best friends. Reagan could go to Russia tomorrow, get a freeze in the next two weeks with Andropov. We have to stop hating. Jesus said, look not for the moat in the other person's eye, look instead for the moat in your own eye. Only if we do that and see our own dark side will we be able to move towards peace. Jesus also said, it is said in the days of old, thou shalt not kill, but I say to you, anyone who hath ought against thy neighbour is in danger of the judgement. In other words, it's the anger behind the kill which is inappropriate in the nuclear age. Archbishop Hunthausen in Seattle said, anyone who seeks to save one's life through the use of nuclear weapons will lose it, but anyone who gives up those weapons for Jesus' sake and for the sake of the gospel of love will save it. Next time you see a baby, look into its eyes and see the incredible innocence and the profound archetypal wisdom in those eyes and know that's what we're about to save. This is the most joyful thing any of us could be doing. What a privilege to have been brought to this point to be the generation to save God's creation and do what Jesus told us to do 2,000 years ago. I want to finish by reading Shakespeare's 18th sonnet to demonstrate what we're about to lose. Shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed. And every fair from fair sometime declines, by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in his shade, when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe, or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Thank you. Dr. Calicott, you reminded us of Einstein's quote shortly after Nagasaki and Hiroshima, everything has changed but the way we think. You have made us think today. We take a moment, uh, we're running a bit late, but that's fine. I'm glad you took every minute that you did. This is your hour. Uh, but we do take a moment to keep faith with those who must leave, and we take the moment to let questions come forward. I was given a few questions by a number of you earlier, and I think we'll, uh, we'll get right into it. Uh, a number of them have already gathered around this very current debate uh, the, among the uh, Catholic bishops and between the, the Catholic bishops and the administration. I wonder if you'd be begin your comments commenting on that whole uh, agenda. Well, I think the Catholic Church has taken the lead in this. 25% um, of Americans are Catholics, 30% of the military are Catholics, and they're saying it's a, it's, a, it's a sin to work on nuclear weapons that are targeted on cities. In fact, Archbishop Hunthausen calls the Trident submarine the Auschwitz of Puget Sound. That is uh, not an exaggeration, it's an underestimate because in an one Trident submarine there are enough nuclear weapons to destroy every major city in the Northern Hemisphere. He's talking about millions of Auschwitz gas ovens. 
Uh, I just think that the churches are being wonderful in this area and they're leading the country and also the doctors and the lawyers and the merchants and the chiefs. This is a movement of people uh, to save the lives of their children and grandchildren. Relating to that, the administration has recently replied to the Roman Catholic bishops that on the basis of a just war theory, nuclear war can be argued as necessary. Uh, how do you respond to that? I just almost don't feel like responding. It makes me feel nauseated. Mm -hmm. um, we're mm. talking about destroying God's creation. What are they talking about? Right. You spoke of on the beach. I think it would be interesting to hear a little more about how that generated some of your uh, concern and anger. Well, I was 14 and, and uh, very curious, and I read Neville Shute's book, On the Beach. In fact, I saw it for the first time the other night on television. And it's about a nuclear war that occurs by accident in the Northern Hemisphere, and everyone's killed. Could easily happen today. This was written in about 53 or 4. And gradually, the only people left alive in the world are people living in Melbourne, which is where I lived. And gradually, the radioactive cloud came down, and Amer some Americans came in a submarine to escape the fallout. And it shows, it describes families um, getting cyanide capsules and the discussion they have, the grief they went through when they had to give their baby cyanide so they wouldn't go through the agonies of acute radiation illness. And in the film, all you see are the beautiful, beautiful streets of Melbourne that I know and love so well. And there are streetcars, trams in the middle of the street, and just bits of newspaper flying down the street. And I felt the same way the other night as I felt when I was 14, desperate, totally unprotected by the people who should be knowing better, and feeling, how can man be so stupid, and I'm not sure if we could stop it. And I cried, and my 16-year-old son looked at me in astonishment. He said, Mum, how would everyone feel if they knew you were sitting there crying? <laughs> but, yeah, it really affected me terribly. That for 30 years I felt totally unprotected. And one day my parents died when I was 30 and I said, my God, I'm an adult now. That means I have to take responsibility for this world. I've got three children and over my dead body does anyone kill my kids? That's how I feel. Hmm. President Reagan stated, and this is another uh, question from the group, stated at his news conference last week that the anti-nuclear movement was incited or manipulated by foreign powers. Do you care to comment on that? Well, what should I say? <laughs> Are you manipulated by the KGB? <laughs> um, when I'm interviewed by TASS reporters, which I sometimes am, um, I get their cards and I give them to my lawyer and he gives them to the FBI so we keep everyone happy. Um, I don't really mm -hmm. need to answer that. Yes. As, as the New York Times said that that statement reminds them of the most heinous days of McCarthyism and they said, shame on you, Mr. President. This question bears on that problem of uh, proliferation. Recent estimates indicate that at least 31 countries will have nuclear weapons by the year 2000. Isn't it important that the United States have a deterrence capability to prevent their use? Well, you see, in the hands of Colonel Gaddafi and others, uh, 
And don't forget Hitler lived not long ago and Mussolini and other mad people, I mean mad. Uh, there's no way you can stop mad people by deterrence. The theory of deterrence is if you do that, I'll blow up the world. That's the theory of deterrence. It's a typical masculine argument. It's not... And I think that's how men operate from a position of strength. It's not an argument that women use at all. We're for conflict resolution. We know how to solve a conflict in a marriage. What's the matter, hun? Why haven't you talked to me for two days? You know? Well, have I done something? We're good at that. It's time the feminine principle rose up and took control of the world. And it's... The, the superpowers signed the Non-Proliferation Treaty in 1968 and they promised if the little countries didn't build nuclear weapons, they would promise to disarm bilaterally. They've done exactly the opposite. I think they've behaved like nine-year-old boys in a sandbox. And it's time that they grew up because they're the policemen of the world. And I know coming from another country, if the superpowers say to us, you're not to build nuclear weapons, we're the only ones who can have nuclear weapons. We say, who do you think you are? will have nuclear weapons. That's the impetus to build nuclear weapons because you only need one to blow up Moscow or New York and ha you have the ultimate power in the world. That's why the superpowers have to rapidly start disarming because we're in a very serious state. Thank you. Another question from the floor. Have you considered bringing your message to the people of the Soviet bloc? Isn't this necessary if we're to have real progress in arms limitation? We have. Um, we have an organization called the International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War. The two co-chairmen are Dr. Bernard Lahn from Harvard and Dr. Chazov, who was Leonard Brezhnev's personal cardiologist. Um, <clears throat> we've met twice and Dr. we've agreed to have no politics and no propaganda because we're physicians united by the Hippocratic Oath. Dr. Chazov has been frequently on national Soviet TV for an hour telling the Russian people that they'll be vaporized, their eyes will melt, they'll turn into charcoal statues, um, and spoken to 150 million Russians. Recently, three American physicians and three Soviet physicians did the same thing on national Soviet TV, totally uncensored, talked to 200 million Russians this time, and Dr. Lowndes said to the Russians, your civil defense system is useless, and you're all going to die. That was uncensored, and that was shown on national public uh, television in this country. Could you tell us a little more about Physicians for Social Responsibility, the, the, the spread and depth and uh, Yeah, we size. existed in the early 60s, uh, formed by a group of Boston physicians, and they wrote two articles for the New England Journal of Medicine on nuclear war. And because of those articles, the Pentagon asked for 500 reprints. They said it was the best study they'd ever seen of that subject. And uh, that helped to bring about the Partial Test Ban Treaty. They then sort of died out and in 1978 we revitalized them again and we started with 10. Then the day after Three Mile Island, serendipitously, we had an, uh, an ad in the New England Journal of Medicine about the dangers of nuclear power. We got 500 new members. Then just after Afghanistan, we had our first medical symposium on the medical consequences of nuclear war at Harvard. We got extraordinary press. And since that time, we've grown enormously. We have 16,000 physicians. 30,000 members, you don't have to be a physician to join, 170 chapters, the American Medical Association has come out strongly against nuclear war, and most medical organizations in the country have passed resolutions against nuclear war. 
-hmm. And on Saturday in Wiley Hall at the University of Minnesota, we're having another uh, symposium on the medical consequences of nuclear war, much more powerful than the speech you just heard just now, mm -hmm. um, and it's starting at 8.30. All of you are invited to attend. At Wiley Hall at the University of Minnesota. Saturday, starting at 8.30 a.m. going all day. All right. Cost not very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, what are you worrying about cost for, for when we might all blow up in two years? <laughs> Have you ever contacted President Reagan to ask for a one-to-one -one conversation? And if so, if not, why not? Uh, <clears throat> sort of, sort of. I can't answer that. Uh, I think this needs to be the last question. What, if any, is the impact of uh, Leonid Brezhnev's death on uh, nuclear disarmament? Do you have any it's thoughts? It's interesting. We met uh, with our international physicians in April in Cambridge, and General Milstein was there, who's the, who was the military advisor to Brezhnev, and he was very frightened at that time. He said there's a tremendous succession struggle going on at the moment. And he was frightened that the Hawks might win. He said, if the Hawks win, we may as well give up. He said, if a young man gets in, aged about 50, with an extended tenure, the Hawks have won. If an older man gets in with a transitory tenure because he's older, the Doves have won. I think the Doves have won. Thank God. Mm -hmm. I, I need to say a couple of things just before a final uh, salute to our speaker. Uh, to remind our radio audience that this program is originating at Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. This is our Thursday noon town hall forum, and our speaker has been Dr. Helen Caldicott, uh, head of Physicians for Social Responsibility, talking about the medical and uh, all other consequences of nuclear uh, war. Her being here has been co-sponsored by the Pillsbury Company, uh, which company is also sponsoring the distribution of this program over American public radio. Let me quote from Coleridge's Ancient Mariner. In the Ancient Mariner, Coleridge says of himself, until my ghastly tale is told, this heart within me burns. I pass like night from land to land, I have strange power of speech. I think this describes eloquently our special guest. I've often heard it said that conviction begets eloquence, and yours is a very special eloquence, and we thank you. <laughs>